I'm surrounded by pastors. I got Kurt, I got Pastors Burton, and Leslie Bolt over here. I've got, I thought I saw Tim Vink back here somewhere. There he is, right there. He's, I thought you were on the edge. <laughs> um, oh, I heard Greg then too. Yeah, he's back there somewhere. Okay. We're starting a new series. And the new series is on our core values. Now, I'm going to just tell you how this is going to go. Uh, core values are core. They're, they're things we, as a church, about six years ago, the consistory said yes to these core values, that these are who we are. So they help us make decisions, but they also are part of our DNA. So um, they help us make decisions like, okay, this doesn't fit our vision. If something comes to us, it's good, but it doesn't necessarily fit our vision, our mission, and it doesn't fit our values. It's probably best for someone else to do. Uh, we have six core values. So this next, this series, we're going to be walking through these six core values. Today is authenticity. Next week is empowerment. It's throwing my little uh, rhythm off a little bit because normally I preach three, I'm off one. I preach three, I'm off one uh, weeks. And, but I'm going to be on, off, on, off, on, off this next six weeks because we're, we're picking the person who's probably best suited for any particular core value. So um, maybe not the person that knows it best, but the person that's most passionate about it. Pastor Kurt is preaching on empowerment next week. If you spend any time with Kurt, when someone talks about, someone comes with an idea to the church and they say, well, what do I think we should do? And when where Kurt goes, yeah, how can we help you do it? And he sees them take it and run with it. He tells he tells stories, but he doesn't tell stories as, as, as often and as with as much enthusiasm as empowerment. So Kurt should be the guy preaching on empowerment. So the next six weeks is going to be core values. And then, then we're going to give you a one-year mission vision challenge. The consistory and the ministry staff met in January and February of last year. And we believe we have a pretty good idea of where God is leading us in the next five to seven years. And with five to seven years, there come 90-day 90, 90 goals, 90-day goals, 90-day goals, but, but one-year goals. So we're, our first one-year goal will be breaking out in seven weeks from now. And you won't be surprised by it. You might be surprised by the number that's attached to it, but you won't be surprised by it because we, we talked three weeks ago. We spent three weeks on hospitality, and I told you that hospitality is going to be a big deal this year. So be thinking hospitality. Uh, core values drive us. They remind us who we are and whose we are as a church. So we're going to be talking about authenticity today. Now, here's how this is going to go, and I, gotta, I just got to confess a little bit of my fear, okay? Okay. Um, just like when I walk out in the, in the commons area, I have hearing aids. I don't hear well. And if anyone has hearing aids, you know that when there's a big crowd and there's lots of noise, hearing aids don't make it better. They make it worse. Um, in a restaurant, I have to read my wife's lips. So if I'm out there, I'm always worried I'm going to walk out, out by there. Someone's going to say my name and I'm not going to hear them. I'm going to come off as aloof. Um, if, if, if I've got them in, it's so I can hear people one-on-one, -on -one, but it doesn't help me back there. So my apologies, but I always have a fear that I'm going to mess that up. I have a fear on a sermon like today, and here's what it is. Three years ago, four years ago, in the middle of a sermon, I summarized the entire book of Jonah, but the entire time I used the name Job. I told the story right, but it was the wrong guy, and I never heard it. Until I walked out the door and Pastor Irv found me and he goes, hey, you know that that was Jonah. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you said Job the whole time. Huh? So last night, I'm going to be summarizing two large passages today. And I, last night, I'm tossing a turn all night like, man, I'm going to say it wrong. I'm going to say it wrong. So I'm surrounded by pastors. If I say the wrong name when I'm talking about David and Uriah and Bathsheba and, and Nathan, just 
yell out, okay? Because I do not want to live with this all afternoon when I'm, when I'm panicked over how foolish I was. So, here we go. We're going to read from Mark 9. I'm going to summarize Genesis 32 and then again, uh, then later 2 Samuel. We'll have some other verses that get pulled in as well. Not all of 2 Samuel, but 2 Samuel, you'll, you'll know when we get there. Um, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read this core value and here we go. Let's pray. Lord, your word's not mine. Your hope, not mine. Remind us where our help comes from. Remind us whose we are. Give me the spirit, the cadence, the words to speak your words in your way to your people today. And if there's something I plan to say that that you don't want to say that's not of you, I don't want to say it. Convict me of it later, but do not let me speak something false to your people. But Lord, if there's something I I don't have planned to say, but you want said, make it clear so that I know it's from you and I will speak your word to your people. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you want us to hear and to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Before excellence, before professional, before polished, we believe that authenticity is most important in our lives. Even though it may cost us, it is better to be real and honest than it is to put on a front. We do not want our ministries or our lives to be sloppy, but it is authenticity that will drive us, not perfection. Now, this is something that most people go, well, duh. But I'm going to share truth with you that you all know and that I know, but we've all, because we're Dutch polite, we've all decided to let each other off the hook and act like this isn't true. You ready? You're messed up. And I'm messed up. We're a mess. It's a stinking pile of rotting cat food and mayonnaise. Every one of us. But because we're Dutch polite and kids know that they're messed up. And, and I, when I was growing up with my brothers, the three brothers, and we fought. I mean, blood was drawn quite often. I'm not kidding around when I say we fought like cats and dogs. And claws. It was not pretty most of the time. My mom, single mom, from about my sixth grade on, poor woman, but my brothers and I fought, and we would argue, and then, and then I went off to college, and all, I knew how wrong my brothers were when they told me things about me. They were so wrong. I knew it, because you can't, I can't be wrong. And then I went off to college, and David Bass was my roommate freshman year, Scott Hall, and he said the same things about me that they did. He must be wrong. We all get this way. We, we, think, we think we've got our stuff. We think our stuff is right and others are wrong. And, and then over time, as we grow up, we learn to, to just, look, I'm not going to call you on your stuff. You don't call me on mine. But then we translate that to God, and we think that we can, we can clean ourselves up so God sees us as better than we actually are. That's where we're headed this morning, that that is not what God calls us to do. We're going to read a passage from Mark chapter 9. And I believe, this is my own opinion, Other than Jesus, I believe the most authentic sentence uttered in the New Testament is near the end of this story. We're not going to finish the story. I encourage you to go and read what happens, how Jesus takes care of this situation after today. But Mark 9, we're going to read up to that authentic phrase, and then we'll, we'll move on to Genesis 32. It reads like this. When they came to the other disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Now, if you walk up into a tense situation, you yourself, 
You walk up and you're the kind of the guest of honor, so to speak. So let's say that you come into a, a banquet and you're the speaker or that you've organized something and people are going to, to raise people up and they want to thank so-and-so and thank so-and-so and your name's at the top of the list. Um, and, but you walk in and there's some grumbling and mumbling and maybe some raised voices going on and everyone turns and runs toward you. Can I have your autograph? You might go, huh, yeah. Oh, on your hat, I'm sorry. Yeah. Not Jesus. Everyone comes in wonder. They come, they approach him. And he says, like a good dad, what are you arguing about? And a man in the crowd answered, I'm going to read it like a preacher first. Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by, uh, by a spirit and robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Okay, that's reading it like a preacher. Now read it like a dad. I know I've been desperate before. My wife, two years ago in January, had a condition called colitis. It wasn't where it's supposed to show up. They thought it was her appendix, but they took that out years before. And so they put her in the hospital and they hooked her up to an IV and they said, you're going to get this IV until this infection is gone. Then we're going to send you home for a 10 to 14 day uh, course of Cipro, which is not something they do for minor little stuff. In other words, if we don't get this handled, you're probably going to die. So I've never been more earnest, more honest, more focused in prayer than I, had, than I was in those four days sitting in the hospital with my face turned toward her, only went home at night, but she had my full attention. And yes, I know that the Lord can, but I was hoping he will make her okay. And it's not just because I don't know how to cook. I can't imagine my life without her. And so nothing makes you more honest, more authentic, more, more real than when it seems desperate. I think this man, when Jesus said, what are, they arguing, what are you arguing about? He said, teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit and is right. He can't even talk. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. His teeth get all grindy and he becomes rigid. Your disciples couldn't do anything. Oh, unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring me the boy or bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. It fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth, just like the dad had said. And Jesus asked the father, how long has he been like this? From childhood. It, it's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, this is a weird thing to say. I've been a pastor a long time. And so whether I'm a good guy or not, I figured out how to come off like a pretty good guy in certain situations. I mean, I might be raging inside because of some god-awful thing someone has said. But if someone comes up and they're hurting, whatever's going on inside, I've kind of got that. Someone says, can you, can you help us? How can I help? Not Jesus. Because he's not fake. And he's not going to pretend. He's not concerned about this man's ask for help because Jesus, just like the, 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 man, uh, the man with leprosy in Mark chapter 1, he comes to Jesus, he falls, he risks his life to come to Jesus because he's not supposed to come in contact with, because he's unclean, he's not supposed to con come in contact with people that don't have leprosy. Falls to his knees and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus touches him first, loves him just like he is, then says, I'm willing, then cleans him of leprosy. But Jesus, 
doesn't say, how can I help? He says, the man says, if you can do anything, have pity on us, help us. If you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed. It doesn't say that he murmured. It says he exclaimed. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I get it, but I don't get it. I believe you, but I don't believe you. I know, but I don't know. Who hasn't been in that situation? Who hasn't, who hasn't been in a spot where they, they know what the right thing to do is? And you have all your Christian friends telling you, well, just pray more. Just read the Bible more. Just do this more. Just do this more. And you're like, I don't want any more Jesus Crispy. I want something real. This man wants his son, desperately wants his son healed. He wants him better. He's sick of this thing, throwing him into the fire, into the water, gnashing his teeth, foaming at the mouth. The whole world revolves around this spirit in this son. And it's wrong. And so when Jesus says, you could, everything's possible if you believe, he's not only talking to the Father, he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the teachers of the law because they couldn't get it done. What couldn't they get done? They couldn't get this boy delivered. Saved, healed, delivered. All same word. And Je- that's why Jesus goes, oh, come on, folks. How long do I need to be here? How long do I need to say this? How long until you get real and honest and realize that God's the only one that can deal with everything that's broken. See, you're a mess. I'm a mess. The only person that can deal with what's messed up and broken is God. I think the most utterly authentic utterance in the New Testament from someone other than Jesus is this man saying, I believe you, but I don't believe you. I have faith, but I don't have faith. And this isn't new. If you think back to Genesis 32, you might not be thinking chapter and verse, but, but you know the story of, you know Jacob? Remember Jacob? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was the guy who stole his brother's blessing with his mom's help because, see, his brother Esau uh, smelled like an animal. It's true. Mom cut up some skins and put it on him, and he went in, and his dad was going blind, and he, he heard that his dad was going to give Esau a blessing, so Jacob went in, and he stole it. Even had his dad touch his hairy arms because that's how his brother would be he's ruddy and, and hairy. And, and, and when, he found, when, when he got the blessing, how, why God honored that, I'm not really sure, but that's how God planned it out. And, and Jacob knew that Esau was going to kill him, so he takes off. He takes off and he schemes again, and then he gets schemed against. So first he deceived his father and his brother with the help of his mother to take something that did not belong to him. And then he goes off and he, and he, and he finds this woman that he falls in love with and makes a deal with the father-in-law that I'll work for you for seven years if you give me her. And he does, but then he doesn't give him the wife that he wanted. He gives him the other one. And so then he had another seven years to get her. It just got weird. But Jacob ended up coming like this with his father-in-law and God kind of gave him a word, it's time to go back to your homeland. And he takes all of his family, all of his herds, all of his maidservants and manservants, hundreds if not thousands of people, certainly thousands of head of stock, and they take off. And they get to a point near the fort of the Jabbok. And Jacob gets word that Esau, who's, who's now become a warring tribe, Esau's coming to kill him. And so he, he's smart. He prepares for the worst. And he, and he divides his family and his herds, and, and, he, and he puts one group out in front, one group out in back. So if the, the half of the family and herds that go out, if Esau attacks them, maybe the rest can escape. But, but Jacob's not a good man. He doesn't go out to the tip of the spear with the family, the the part of the family that's going to meet him first. He stays with the ones behind. So if they get killed, he can save his own skin. 
But here's what happens. Here's when Jacob, the most authentic moment in Jacob's life, because Jacob is a schemer. He's a deceiver. He takes what isn't his, and he's someone that people scheme against. At the fort of the Jabbok, when the family and, and herds are separated, God shows up and wrestles with Jacob all night long. Physically wrestles with Jacob, not, not in prayer, physically wrestles with him. I mean, to the point where Jacob at the end of it is, is muddy and sweaty and beaten up. Now, I want to ask you, dad, or, uh, men, who, have, who of you has a son or more? Just, okay. And you were a son, right? Okay. Have you ever wrestled with your boys when they were four, five, six? Could they beat you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that as a no. I had, I had three brothers. So my dad, when, when he was still around our house, um, we used to wrestle on the family room floor. It had a great big dark green shag rug, 70s, that my mom used to rake. Now, I said that one time to people in the office. They're so like, oh, yeah, that's how you used to take care of shag. No. Yeah, a rake. It wasn't meant for outside. It was only for inside, but it was still just a rake. But we would wrestle with my dad. We'd jump on his back. And, and you know, we're, we're boys. We fought like cats and dogs. And, man, we're going to take him down because this time we're going to win. And after a couple of fingernail scratches on his neck, and, and he's a little sweaty and, and because we're sweaty, and at any time he could have just picked up all four of us, opened the sliding door right next to the room, put us outside, closed it up, and been done with us. He easily, he could have thrown us around like rag dolls. But we thought we might win. Finally, he just had to go... <laughs> It's enough, guys. You smell bad. If I, as a boy, could not beat my dad, how much less could Jacob beat God? Why did God wrestle with him all night? One, he had to get Jacob to the point that he was end of himself physically. He came to the end of himself physically. Two, he wanted to reveal Jacob for who he was. And you find it right here. The theology behind God needing to leave because the sun comes up, have no idea. But God, God says to Jacob, the sun's coming up, I got to go. And Jacob, in all, in all of his hubris, holding on to the leg of God, absolutely a pile of mess, sweat, and mud, and spit probably, says, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. Love this. And God has a question for him. What's your name? God knows his name. Jacob knows his name, but God knows Jacob. Does Jacob know Jacob? Jacob had to get to the point where he looks God in the eye and he says, I'm a schemer. I'm a sinner. I'm a broken mess of humanity. Jacob sharing his name is sharing his character. He had to own who he was to become whose he is to become. Only then did God say, you're not Jacob anymore. You're Israel. You've struggled with man and with God. You weren't overcome. Now I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. The blessing of God is being transferred from Abraham to Isaac, and it really becomes real here. When Jacob becomes a man who's dependent on God instead of a man who's dependent on himself, he goes from being a schemer trying to convince everybody he's better than he is 
to being a man who knows who he is and that the only way to survive and to thrive is to live as if you belong to the one who loves you most. Happens to David too. There's kids in the room, so I'll be as nice as I can about this, but in 2 Samuel 12, 13, that area, there's a whole story here, but David was in a place he shouldn't, or David was in a place he shouldn't be. He saw what he shouldn't see. He did what he shouldn't do, and he became who God didn't want him to be. It was spring when kings go off to war, but David stayed behind. He was in a place he shouldn't be. He saw what he shouldn't see. He saw a woman bathing on her, uh, on her rooftop, and, and instead of looking away like a good gentleman, he allowed his desire to raise up. He sent for her, and he spent time with her, intimate time with her, and she became with child. And so he brought her husband home so that she, he could be with her, hoping that that might disguise what had happened. But Uriah, her husband, was so loyal to his troops that if they don't get to come home to be with their spouses, he's not going to be with his. So David's plan is foiled, so he sends Uriah back and he gives commander's orders to put Uriah, when you go to face the enemy, you put him at the tip of the spear, knowing that and hoping that Uriah would die and Uriah was killed. So David is, a, is an adulterer and a murderer. And God sends to David his friend, his seer, his confidant, his prophet, his pastor, his priest, Nathan. And Nathan uses a parable about some guy who stole someone's sheep and doesn't account for it. And, 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 and David gets all furious and he goes, he's going to pay it back. He's going to pay it back. He's going to pay it back four times. Who is this man? And Nathan looks at him and says, you are. And then David realized what he had done. And he knew that he couldn't hide from God because God had sent Nathan to tell David that he is a man who takes what isn't his, that steals, that, that, that harms, that hurts, that murders. And David is a king. And so he could say to, to Nathan, off with your head, and he would have to be killed. If he decrees that it's okay for the king to take any woman he wants, that becomes law. His word is law. But David, who was chosen by God, messed up as, I don't know if about adultery and murder, that's pretty big stuff. He could have denied it. He could have deflected it. He could have done anything, but he fell to his knees and he said, I've sinned against my Lord. He's honest. He's authentic. He's raw. He's real. He's broken. And God lifts him back up over time and makes him a great, great king and one that God says, he is a man after my own heart. David was a mess. Jacob was a mess. This man with the son who has an evil spirit is a mess. You're a mess. I'm a mess. And here's what we do. This isn't an accusation. It's just a study of human behavior. You'll see it on Pollock. You watch one week national news and you will see this every time. I'll give you examples with Adam first. Adam and Eve, walking, talking, knowing, loving relationship with the God of the universe. Just don't eat that. They eat that. They know they're naked. They clothe themselves. Then what happens? God comes looking. Adam's hiding. Why are you hiding? That woman you gave me, see, the attention and focus of God is on him, and he doesn't want it. It's uncomfortable. He feels ashamed, and so he points toward another. It happened with Peter. With Peter in the end of John, Peter's in, in the boat 
and he puts his clothes on. When he sees Jesus, he puts his clothes on and jumps in the water. Don't know why he's fishing naked. I don't. Hops in the water, and he and, he and G, Peter and Jesus take a walk. We, it doesn't say they took a walk, but we find out that they do because John was following after them. And Jesus is walking with Peter and going, and remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times, so Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Yes, Peter, do you, do you, do you love me? You know I do, Peter. Hey, really? Because it's going to get hard. Yes, Lord. And then Jesus begins to describe to Peter what's going to happen to him, how his life is going to go, and that he's probably going to die for Jesus' sake. And what does Peter do? Does he go, yes, my Lord? No. He turns and he looks at John and says, what about John? And Jesus says this, and he says it to you and he says it to me. If I choose to let him remain until I return, what's it to you? See, authenticity requires that we allow the gaze of God to be on us and we not deflect. You watch TV, that whatever the new accusations are out there this week, by the way, two weeks ago, it was something completely different. Two weeks from now, it will probably be something completely different. Your guy did this. Yeah, but your guy did worse. Your guy did this. Yeah, but that woman did worse. Yes, it's always yes, but deflect. And you do it too. It's not an accusation. I do it. It's a natural human tendency to when the focus of another shows us our stuff, our junk, our mess, our sin, that we want to at least compare ourselves. Well, yeah, but what they did isn't any different, and they got off without anything, and I have to do it. We're always trying to equalize. And God says, stop it. Stop. If he chooses to let someone else get off without a hitch, what's that to you? What is to you is this. God wants to make you new. And when I try to clean myself up and present myself better to you and better to God, who am I fooling? Do you know a hypocrite when you meet one? Yeah, you know what? So do the people you meet. If you can spot one, so can they. But we've just decided to let, look, I'm not going to call you on your stuff. You don't call me on mine. We'll all pretend like we're all good. But we can't hide it from God. We can't. Nor should we try. See, we all have this stinking pile of rotting cat food and mayonnaise. That's authentic. That's real. We're all messed up. So I'm going to ask you this. When you picture that stinking pile of rotting cat food and mayonnaise that is the sin and the pride and the shame and the hurt and the, and the worry and, 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 and the I'm going to be found out one day, all of that stuff that is our lives, when you picture that and you picture Jesus approaching you with your stinking pile of rotting cat food, and it is tall and it is steamy and it smells disgusting, do you see Jesus on the other side of that like this? Oh, such a disappointment. Or do you picture him with his arm around you, looking at it and going, I see it, I too, and we'll get to it. But right now, just know I love you. See, one of the questions we ask people when they make profession of faith is, do you accept and receive Jesus and embrace him as Lord of your life. You don't embrace someone that wants to condemn you. Jesus himself was authentic in the garden. He was sweating blood and he said to the Father, take this cup for if there's any other way, 
but not what I want, what you want. Folks, that is authenticity in a nutshell. Instead of cleaning ourselves up, trying to hide from God, which we can't hide from God, he knows everything. Instead, why don't we come to the one who cleans us and allow him to hide us in himself? See, hiding from God keeps us from God, and he will not impose his will upon us and force us to come around. He loves us so much that he will allow us to be as miserable and as fake and pretend as we want to be. But it tells us that we are hidden in God through Christ. So it's him that puts a hedge around us, him that hides us from the enemy, him that protects us from the enemy, him that makes us new. Instead of trying to fool God to think that we're better than we are, why don't we become who God has already made us to be by being transformed? How do you do that? You first admit who you, who you are, and then you become whose you are. Being fake and phony leads to destruction. Being honest and raw and authentic gives God something to work with. It also gives the people that you love the most in your life a person to be in relationship with instead of a movie to try to be in relationship with. It does not, cannot, and will never work. It's harder this way, but it's real. We're going to take communion in just a few short moments. And I want you to think about what he did so that your body is not obliterated in the lake of fire. He allowed his to be whipped, scourged, and killed. And because God knows that unless there's blood that's spilled, there is no forgiveness, he allowed his blood to be spilled he took the cost so you don't have to pay it. There is nothing you can do to disappoint God. He took, he absorbed it all. He became us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's the stinking pile of rotting cat food and mayonnaise. It will go away with him, in him, and through him. Anything other than owning that says that you can do it on your own. This says you can't. This says you shouldn't try. This says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden. I will give you rest. If you're sick, I want to make you well. If you're hurt, I want to take away your pain. If you're sinful, I want to take away your sin. So I ask you this. When the tray comes by, instead of going, Lord, 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 please, please forgive me all my many sins, just one piece of your mess, own it. Tell him. Ask him to forgive you and receive, and receive the forgiveness because it is freely offered, freely given, and it costs you nothing except dying to yourself and letting Christ be real in you, by you being real when you come to him and to one another. Let's pray. Lord, even though we're not good at this, even when we blow it, and even if we sin again, 
you love us. You pursue us. You absorb the cost for us so that we can live in you because of you and then you can live through us. Lord, whatever you're going to do with the elements, the blood, the juice, the bread, the body, do it now. We don't necessarily understand it, but we do want to experience that you give us this means of grace. In Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit who lives within us, for the glory of God our Father, we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? I love watching your faces when we're singing things like, there's no lie he won't tear down. And people are just going, yes. God is relentless. He's reckless. He's prodigal in his love and pursuit of you. Remember the story of the prodigal son? It's actually the prodigal father. It's the wayward son. When he had messed everything up and he was a mess. He had just thrown everything away. When he came back home, that Jewish elderly man pulled up his robe and he ran to him, embraced him, and called him his son again. That is how God sees you, even in your mess. So stop trying so hard to prove that you're worthy of his love because there's nothing you can do to shake it. He loves you already. He pursues you already. And no matter how far away you are, the trip back is this quick. It's just repentance. You just turn around and he's, he's been following you all along. So let him run to you. Let him follow you. Let him embrace you as you embrace him. He'll deal with this stuff. But first he wants you to see who you are by finding out whose you are. The Lord bless you. And he has. Keep you. He will. Make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. The Lord give you his face and smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.